and welcome to a brand new criminal case. On the 19th of April 1993, the United States witnessed a horrifying human tragedy on its soil, an extreme sectarian conflict that the country's senior officials tried so hard to contain and prevent. The death toll was high, 78 dead, including 27 children, all belonging to the Davidian sect, a branch of the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's worth noting that 51 days earlier, the sect had begun a tug-of-war with the authorities at its collector residence in Waco, Texas. They stubbornly refused to cooperate and hand over illegal possessions of weapons and explosives on its premises. Behind the extremely controversial and religious group, there is in reality a strange man, obsessed with women, the leader of the cult whom his followers devoutly call the Messiah, David Koresh. With nerdy glasses and an air of youth, David Koresh was charismatic, unpredictable and dangerous. Yet at the beginning, nothing suggested the diabolical spirit of the man, who would lead his followers into a suicidal madness sparing neither men, nor women, nor young children. The Siege of Waco, which dramatically put an end to the Davidians, remains one of the most infamous sectarian episodes in the United States. The question remains, why? Why was such an arsenal of weapons and explosives acquired? Perhaps a planned attack on a shopping mall? Or an organized attack on the U.S. Federal Bureau? To answer this, I invite you to look back into the very beginnings of this sect and the evolution of its all-powerful guru, David Koresh. First, let's understand how a cult is built. How can an individual, however banal, have such immense hold and influence over the people without arousing their distrust, deceive them with fantastic words without losing his credibility, make them do whatever he pleases, leading them without any constraint to vice, crime, theft, or worse, to their certain death? the United States has been a fertile ground for such deviation. Wherein cults come and go, but not all are alike. This has been the case since the beginning in the 1960s, with the resurgence of a new fashion for esotericism. This includes the extensive media coverage of the supposed and repeated extraterrestrial visits to Area 51, which ended up by persuading an overwhelming majority of the Americans that life does exist elsewhere, in other skies. Before engaging in mental manipulation, brainwashing, torture, harassment, large-scale scams, and organized crime, these cults have a strong and peculiar religious vocation among their founders. They are often brilliant orators with a lot of charisma, all of them belonging to movements derived from Anglican Protestantism, the Pentecostal Church, the Mormon Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Jehovah Witnesses, the Scientology Church, the Raelians or the movement for the welcome of the Elohim creators of humanity, and so on to name a few. In an America plagued by war in the Middle East, internal struggles for the rights of diversified communities, internal political blunders, and media scandals, 
The cult establishes itself as a savior for an ultra-materialistic world that is drifting apart. The future would-be followers, who is often insecure, in search of self, disoriented, or psychologically weakened by personal and professional worries, find refuge in such community, which is only too happy to welcome and listen and comfort him or her without judging them. All cults have this subliminal welcome approach that aims to entice and seduce the future disciples before carefully choosing in the trap on them. Following a similar approach, the Branch Davidian was founded in the southern United States, more precisely in Waco, halfway between Dallas and Houston in Texas. When Benjamin Rodin and his wife Lois took over the reins of the future Davidian sect in the late 1950s, it was only a fraction of the Seventh-day Adventist church, which had just split up to go on its own. The Rodin couple, who met in the late 1930s, were brought together by a love for the Christian faith. Lois May Scott was a Protestant of Scottish descent, while Benjamin Rodin, anglicized as Ben or Benny, was the son of Jewish immigrants recently settled in the United States. When they first met, Lois had no trouble drawing him into her church meetings and eventually had him converted without any difficulty. Ben and Lois went on to have four boys and two girls. Their eldest son, George, was appointed to follow their footsteps in order of succession of the cult to which they belong. Both of them are indefatigable manipulators, and in a short time they managed to gather a faithful congregation that was growing each day. In the early 1970s, the Rodin couple purchased a home in Waco, halfway between the major Texas cities of Dallas and Houston. They quickly acquired it and set up their community about 50 people from all walks of life. They named the house Mount Carmel in reference to the Har HaKamel mountain in Israel, literally meaning God's vineyard in Hebrew. A very evocative and symbolic name indeed. Thus, sheltered from the outside world, they had complete power over their community. George joined the new residence with his siblings and was a very troubled teenager who did not get on well with his parents. After Ben Roden died in 1978, his wife took over the estate. At the very moment, a strange young man entered the congregation for the first time. He was only 19 years old and from Houston. Lois Roden soon took him under her wings before she began to have a romantic feeling for him. Despite the significant age gap between them, she was not indifferent to Vernon's natural charm, his delicate manners of a well-bred boy, and was quickly won over by his youthful beauty, which reminded her of the Messiah as depicted in the frescoes. Those who knew Vernon Wayne Howell at that time were always charmed by his harmless appearance, his rather banal dress code, but nevertheless he had an eye-catching physique, a tall, athletic stature with long, curly blonde hair, blue eyes and soft, harmonious features. Soon the relationship between the guardian of the Temple of the Davidians and the young disciple turned into something more serious, more carnal. For the time being, the romance was kept under wraps for not attracting the attention of others and to avoid scandals. As Lois Roden's relationship with young Vernon Howell developed, she began to give him many important tasks, like giving him the keys to her office, the safe, and even giving him his place on the platform of honor at the meetings usually held every Friday night. Success came in quickly. The man was a gifted speaker. He combined persuasion and benevolence. His audience was riveted during his sermons, and in time, he even managed to eclipse Lois Roden in the hearts of his followers. His youthfulness worked to his advantage. His innocent yet manly demeanor 
was appealing to more than one woman in the crowd. With these few elements in hand, Vernon Howell took his own first steps as a guru in the making, the future David Koresh in the shaping and building phase. At that time, he already spoke of his ability to speak directly with God and also have premonitions that always turned out to be correct. Lois Roden was delighted with the success of this young man whom she does not regret having hired. Apart from their love affair, he had even become her right-hand man, the man she could rely on for everything from writing sermons to a simple shopping at the supermarket. Vernon kept a low profile, was conciliatory, and only wanted to learn from her. For her part, Lois Roden no longer even tried to hide her jubilation from her son, George, who was beginning to have serious doubts about his mother's good faith. Since the death of the former leader, Ben Roden, his son George remained in the shadows, almost ignored by everyone. As of now, Vernon Howell had taken over everything and taunted him with contempt and arrogance. George was jealous and worried that he, the legitimate heir of the cult, was degraded to the rank of a mere spectator. This could not be allowed. The real leader had to take over the ship. Otherwise, everything his father had worked so hard to build over the years would go up in smokes. He knew that his mother was old, weak, and under the yoke of this profiteer from nowhere. George Roden, without further ado, took action. To achieve this, he managed to rally members of the cult with him turning them against Vernon by provoking him relentlessly, by calling him a parasite, an imposter, a liar, and a charlatan. Words were no longer enough, and the two men even began to physically confront each other with powerful blows. The situation was so bad that George, armed with his gun, finally threw Vernon Howell out of the house with his belongings. Wand ordered him to never set foot in Mount Carmel again, or he would end up with a bullet in his skull. Vernon partially abides by the warning and finds himself a house only a few kilometers away from the Davidian residence, where he settled for two years. The transitional period was devoted to studying the Bible and ancient texts, particularly the Koran and the Talmud, wanting to visit the places where the monotheistic religions were born. He traveled several times to Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, learned the rudiments of Hebrew and Arabic, and also traveled frequently to Europe and Australia to perfect his knowledge of the world outside America. On his return from this long journey, he was contacted by former members of the Davidian branch who wanted to join him. There were now 25 members in all. They informed him that since Lois Roden retired and her son George took charge, Mount Carmel was in trouble. What the Davidians needed now was someone with integrity and responsibility someone who was willing to give his heart and soul to the church. Yes, him. This was Vernon Howell's first victory over his rival. Lois Roden died on 10th of November, 1989, and things rapidly began to deteriorate within the religious community. George Roden, who had become a leader, a dream he had coveted for years, was not the leader of the community he had hoped for. He was an alcoholic, unpredictable, angry, insolent and often had conflicts with members who had no respect for him and threatened to leave him. A few miles away, Vernon Howell had the opposite effect. He was gathering more and more people, primarily medical and journalism students from Houston and Dallas, to listen to the good words of this new prophet full of charisma and culture. His first sermons showcased the relationship between men and women. He said he was in favor of the practice of bigamy even though it was decried in modern society. 
He said he was in favor of marrying twice in public, rather than leading a double love life hidden behind lies and hypocrisy. America is suffering precisely because of the social hypocrisy that is eating away the society. When George Redden heard the news, he was furious and wanted to break the successful assembly that was taking place under his nose. He was further angered when he learned that those who had the nerve to leave Mount Carmel a few months ago had all become Vernon Howell's disciples. The two men clashed again in 1987, this time with pistols within the walls of the residence. The case was eventually dismissed. George Rowden subsequently spent several years in various local mental institutions before killing another patient with an axe, which led him to being sentenced for life at a stricter facility. Freed from his only enemy, the rise of the future David Koresh finally began. But who was behind David Koresh's well-crafted facade? Why did he seek to replace Vernon Vane Howell, the shy young man who wanted to make his mark in the world? A future guru must always leave behind his tormented past and move on. That's the whole explanation. Let's talk about his childhood. It began with difficulty and shame. He was born on 17th of August, 1959, in Houston. His mother, Bonnie Clark, was only 14 when she gave birth. His biological father, Robert Bobby Howell, was much older to her and already married. He left her as soon as she announced her pregnancy. The birth of little Vernon took place in an atmosphere of shame and unspoken words in a very puritanical America where single mothers were no better than prostitutes. For long, he was made to believe that Bonnie was his older sister and that his grandmother, Eurlene Clark, was his real mother. His early years were spent with his maternal grandparents, who took him in, while his very young mother went to work in another city to support him. Bonnie Clark's family belonged to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and were very religious. Little Vernon was introduced to reading the New Testament at an early age by his grandmother, who considered him a child prodigy. At the age of 12, he was able to recite the entire psalm in one go. Despite of suffering from dyslexia, most of his religious education was done orally in front of the organ in Grandpa and Grandma Clark's living room. At school, however, the future David Koresh was not known for his good grades. His dyslexia, unknown at that time, which everyone attributed to a mental and behavioral disorder, brutally slowed him down and caused him to fail. During this period, he was even nicknamed Vernie, or Mr. Ritardo, because he was having trouble keeping up with lessons, the school administration decided to place him in a special class for mentally disabled children he considered this as a terrible humiliation. Moreover, he was an extremely lonely child who was evidently withdrawn and unable to make friends or play with boys his own age. Bonnie Clark, meanwhile, had remarried Roy Haldman, an alcoholic and abusive man. She took her son away from her parents and moved him into her new home. Roy Haldman hated the little boy and used to beat him repeatedly for no specific reason. Bonnie, who also feared him, did nothing to defend her son. In 1996, Bonnie and Roy welcomed their first child, a little boy named Roger, who now demanded all his mother's attention. Vernon felt completely disowned. His mother had rebuilt her life, and he was no longer part of it. While a teenager, he fell deeply in love with the daughter of a parish priest. He desired to marry her right away. He went to the extent of following and harassing her about it. 
his attempts were unsuccessful, and to his great misfortune, when the pastor heard the news, he even forbade him from attending the preaching. Rejected and unable to return to the church, Vernon packed his bags and left the family home at Houston and headed for Waco, where he hoped to find inner peace. Since he had trouble reading and deciphering sentences thanks to dyslexia, he decided to pursue something else, preaching. His vocation was obvious, and he had all the assets for it. A rather attractive physique and a captivating and persuasive voice with a gift of hypnotizing listeners. He changed his birth name from Vernon Wayne Howell to David Koresh. David in reference to the biblical character and Koresh meaning Cyrus in Hebrew, the first king of Persia. From then on, David Koresh's ambitions were cemented. In 1987, he became the head of the Mount Carmel residence, with Lois Roden dead and her son George behind bars in an insane asylum. It was now David's turn, and he alone who would take charge of the Branch Davidian cult. One of the features that will forever mark his reign in the sect was the use and abuse of polygamy, which he established as a healthy behavior for all men of marriageable age. He took the lead and spoke of prophecies and visions that he had every night while sleeping when women would fall to his feet. When he woke up, he would declare that God had ordered him to take 140 women as wives, divided into official wives, the queens, and the unofficial ones, the concubines. From now on, what was a mere vision most certainly invented would become the supreme truth, the behavior to adopt. So he took young Rachel Jones, barely 13 years old as his wife, who was given by her father, Perry Jones a former loyalist of Lois Roden with all his blessings. All new disciples who arrive at Mount Carmel and who were already in a relationship or married have to, as the first condition of enrollment, be separated from their spouses, which took effect from the moment they arrived within the walls of the residence. Because why? Yes, David Koresh wants them all. And what about the husbands? Well, it's very simple. They must now observe strict celibacy accompanied by irreproachable chastity a sort of priesthood, except that they will see their former wives in the arms of the cult leader every day with no hope of getting them back. These conditions, however extreme and bizarre, were accepted by all the members of the Branch Davidian, who complied without flinching or even protesting. By the early 1990s, the small Adventist religious community was beginning to look like a cult. It was common for Koresh to announce his wills and fancies in the morning, when everyone had just woken up. I dreamed that, or God told me to do this or that. This often concerned a new, young recruit whom he wanted to marry, and he started marrying them younger and younger, some not even 15 years old, with the blessings of their parents, who were also members of the cult. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He also told that he had witnessed the revelation of the new light. As the risen Messiah, all the women in the group must belong to him, whether married or single, in order to continually create generations of pilgrims in the service of God. With this in mind, he set his sights on Shari Doyle, a 14-year-old Australian girl whose father, Clive, was an influential member of the Davidians from the time of Ben and Lois Roden. David married the young Shari with Clive's consent. While Clive became the guru's second in command, David also recruited Stephen, Stevie Schneider, who became his eyes and ears. He was in charge of everything that happened in the world outside Mount Carmel and had to report to Koresh daily. Moreover, he was the only one who could take the car into town. The days at Mount Carmel were organized like a camp, with tasks distributed according to rank and gender. Koresh continually gave sermons on the Last Judgment. With time, the community began welcoming many new followers, including many college students and civil servants. David's fascination with them was unbelievable and immediate. It was impossible to resist his soul-searching gaze. As with any other cult, Followers were required to entrust all their assets, salaries, or any other regular income to the guru, who was responsible for managing these pooled assets, which were supposed to pay for the community's expenses. The births also followed one another, as Koresh married a new girl each time. In all, there would have been no less than 20 children born to different women. When the time came to give birth, another follower would take on the role of midwife, as it was formally forbidden for the Messiah's wives to give birth in Houston Hospital. The children of other followers, born outside the cult, were taken in by David, who also became their spiritual father. These children were instructed to call their biological parents dogs while David becomes father. In addition to these hideous abuses, Koresh and his assistants increasingly resorted to acquiring firearms and frequently renewing their stock. In order to not be noticed by large purchases, they started buying 22 long rifles individually. Shooting sessions were then organized in the forest behind Mount Carmel, in which children also took part. As for the adults, they were subjected to real military training. From then on, firearms, their composition, and uses became the subject of daily discussion. However, the Waco authorities understood that something fishy was going on in Mount Carmel. They had already received reports of underage marriages and widespread polygamy, which was forbidden by American law. However, they did nothing to intervene and stop Koresh's deviant and pedophile activities. The year 1992 was the beginning of the death toll and the beginning of the Davidian descent into hell. It all began with the hasty departure of one of Koresh's spiritual sons, the Australian Mark Rayo. The latter who witnessed what must be called scenes of rape between the guru and traumatized young girls could not take it anymore. The situation inside was increasingly unhealthy and anxiety-provoking and was the antithesis of the beautiful preaching David did every night. In other words, do as I say, but don't do as I do. Riolt wanted to return to Australia and put an end to the cult for good, but before doing so, he tried on several occasions to warn the police about the repeated rapes and pregnancies imposed on young girls. The Waco police took note, promised to intervene, but did nothing. The case was too messy and muddy, and it was difficult to intervene without sufficient evidence into a private residential property whose residents have never been heard of. 
Emboldened by the passivity of the authorities, Koresh and his men again ordered a large shipment of various firearms, grenades, and ammunition. But the package transported via one of the local logistics companies was inadvertently opened by one of the delivery men. What he found inside left him speechless, a veritable arsenal of weapons. Not knowing how to react, he took the precautions of contacting one of the ATF agents responsible for alcohol, tobacco, and firearms control. In June 1992, Agent Davy Aguilera was just starting his shift when he received a phone call from the delivery man. Without informing his superiors, Aguilera began a secret investigation on his own. He tried to find out as much as he could about Koresh and his community at Mount Carmel, which was completely closed to the outside world, except, of course, when it came to buying weapons. Aguilera began to have doubts about the presence of this peculiar community living in seclusion and equipping itself with guns and ammunition. He went to great lengths to obtain a search warrant from his superiors, who had since been informed. The investigation lasted seven months. In January 1993, the ATF finally decided to rent a house across the street from the Mount Carmel residence in order to keep a close eye on the movement to and from the community and to guess what was going on behind the imposing walls of the Davidian residence. Some of the agents disguised themselves as the faithful and posed as students interested in the word from David Koresh. The latter welcomed them with open arms, without suspecting their identity, because he loved to receive visitors from outside world and to be surrounded by people who worshipped him. Among these molds, Agent Robert Rodriguez was one of the first to have the privileges of speaking directly to Koresh. He moved to Mount Carmel for good, attended all the Messiah's sermons, pretended to be interested and involved with the group of faithful when in truth equipped with microphones hidden in his clothes. He sent all the information to his colleagues who were hiding in the house across the street. Rodriguez also discovered a large shipment of firearms that the sect had recently acquired. Approximately 2 million rounds of ammunition and cartridges, mostly AR-15s, semi-automatic weapons. In front of him, David Koresh would boast about having such an arsenal of weapons without telling him what he intended to do with them. He would say in a light tone, You know, Bobby, there is nothing illegal about buying and owning guns in this country. I'm not doing anything wrong. As far as I know, any other American citizen could do the same. But in February 1993, Agent Davy Aguilera came knocking on Mount Carmel's door, holding the search warrant he had spent months demanding from his superiors. The nooses began to tighten on Koresh and his community. The Davidians then realize that they are being watched from the outside, either by the FBI or by another state agency. Surely they had even infiltrated mills without their knowledge. The ATF demanded the weapons shipment, which Koresh flatly refused to give. Long talks between the two parties began without success and without reaching a compromise. Stubbornly, Koresh retreated indoors and decided to live as a hermit while waiting for the apocalypse. In truth, he was terrified of surrendering and that the true face of his community, the marriages with teen girls and the consecutive births of babies, would be discovered. He knew that he would be in prison for a long time. The presence of ATF agents on the scene only attracted media attention. Journalists from various national channels and local gazettes began to flock at Mount Carmel. One newspaper headline read, The Sinful Messiah, and told the story of Koresh in sordid detail. The article also announced an upcoming police raid on Mount Carmel if its residents refused to cooperate. And this was indeed what happened, but not in the usual way. 
In the following days, the first shots were fired from the Davidians' house at the ATF agents. The ATF agents, in turn, were ordered to open fire. In a short time, the outside of the residence was transformed into a battlefield. In the heat of the battle, many ATF agents were seriously injured and eventually retreated. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation was called upon to intervene. One of its leaders, Agent Jim Kavanaugh, ordered a ceasefire. The ATF members weakened and confused by this heavy-handed intervention left the scene while the FBI elements took over. For the ATF, it was time to fail and all the efforts of David Aguilera and his men were in vain. The search of Waco, which they thought they had in control, quickly degenerated without them having them to do anything. The toll was high. Four ATF agents were killed and 16 were seriously injured. It was not yet known who was firing semi-automatic weapons from behind the window of Mount Carmel. Was it Courage, his men, his women, or altogether? The FBI decided to change tactics and encourage dialogue while loudspeakers. They learned via messages that slipped in front of the door that Courage was injured in the ambush with the ATF. When the FBI agent started negotiating with him, he asked them to call him Jesus Christ. Over the loudspeaker, Agent Kavanaugh asked him, Mr. Koresh, how are you? Not good? I know you are injured. How are you now? I am very weak. Have you been shot at? And how? Those bastards shot at me, and my youngsters shot back in self-defense. The ATF started this massacre and not us. And so it continued for the next few days. Jim Kavanaugh understood that he was dealing with a particularly abnormal kind of lunatic. His voice was atonal and incredibly serene. Like a typical speaker, he liked to listen to himself talk. What Kavanaugh hoped for this with his non-brutal method of dialogue was that the guru will give himself up willingly. But the discussions with the FBI remained neutral and went around in circles. Their concern was heightened when they learned that they were young children who were directly exposed to firearms. The sentence that Koresh uttered after a few days of negotiations made their blood run cold. Today is the day of the Lord. God calls for blood. Maybe not today, David, the federal agents tried to reason with him. Yes, I'm telling you that today is the day he needs blood. Under pressure from federal agents, he agreed to hand over a dozen children accompanied by a few adults. A logistics team consisting of ambulances, buses, was stationed on-site to welcome the survivors who left the compound. In return, Koresh asked the radio stations to broadcast one of his sermons for one hour on all national channels. At the end of it, he agreed to turn himself and all the members of the cult over to the authorities. The FBI thought this was his last chance and agreed before he changed his mind. At about 1 p.m. that day, every radio station in the U.S. was buzzing with the voice of the Messiah, speaking about the seven seals that represented the end times in the scriptures. He spoke for an hour without pause or hesitation, followed by silence, which was oppressive and interminable. From that moment on, the terrible wait for the FBI agents began. According to the deal made with David Koresh, he and his followers were supposed to leave Mount Carmel immediately. The FBI waited for another hour and nothing happened. Then suddenly the guru's twist. He refused to come out because God asked him to wait. The FBI agents soon realized that they had been duped. David Koresh's tormented nature and psychopathic side were revealed in full view. Until now, the federal agents thought they were communicating with someone honest. 
For three more days, the FBI negotiated with him, three days during which their forces were pushed to the limit. Only one hope kept them going. They knew that David Koresh was mentally exhausted and that his gunshot wound would be infected if he did not receive medical attention. The next day, Koresh sent a child outside with a message attached to his clothes. The message read, When all the children are freed, the adults will die. That same evening, Koresh agreed to release 21 more children and withheld 27 inside Mount Carmel. The FBI agent's current mission was to save as many children as possible. To do this, they even provided Koresh with cameras so that he could film scenes from his family life, which he gladly did. He filmed parts with each of his 27 children he claimed to be the father. Sometimes the children's mothers were also present, smiling and hugging the guru. You see, Mr. Kavanaugh, no woman can resist me. It's not my fault that my charm is so devastating. He boasted to the camera with a satisfied grin. He even gave a voice to the other disciples, men and women, who assured us that they were not held inside against their will. But the situation was still going in circles. It was true that some 20 children had been released, which is a positive point. But now it was Koresh who must come out of his lair to be transferred to justice. At the end of the third week of negotiation, the FBI decided to use all the means at their disposal to dislodge all the people from the place. A big problem needs a big response. Mount Carmel was flooded with lights during the night, projected by helicopters that circled the roof to weaken the residents and prevent them from sleeping. Water, electricity, and telephone lines were also cut off for days to destabilize them. Tanks were also sent in as in any case of war, knocking down the trees around Mount Carmel and crushing everything in their path, including the cars Koresh and his right-hand man, Stephen Schneider, owned. However, there was no response. Total silence from the inside as if they were all dead. What if they are? The FBI was holding its breath. A few days later, Koresh sent two of the cult's representatives to confront the federal agents directly. Among them were Steve Snyder and Wayne Martin, the Davidian's lawyer. The negotiations were very tense. A second meeting was arranged two days later, and this time, neither Schneider nor the lawyer showed up. Finally, the highest court in the state of Texas gave the green light to the FBI to fire tear gas at the residents. The siege of Waco had already lasted 51 days. When the sun rose on April 19, 1993, there was a sense of end times. Federal agent Byron Sage, who had replaced Jim Kavanaugh, in the meantime spoke first from a loudspeaker. To the attention of David Koresh and the individuals present in the Davidian residence, we inform you that we will be firing tear gas into the building in few moments. I order you to surrender immediately. David, you are under arrest. Surrender now. This charade has gone on long enough. No response. After a few hours, Byron Sage saw smoke coming from one of the facades. He did not understand it at the time, and it was not until a few minutes later that the fire started in earnest. The Davidians had decided to set Mount Carmel on fire and perish. Byron Sage, who was still giving orders to a plum in the morning, was now begging Courage to stop this disaster. David, please don't do this. Don't do this to your followers. Think of your children. But it's too late. The fire was well underway, quickly consuming the wooden buildings. Outside, everyone was completely stunned by the apocalyptical scene that was unfolding. The event was even being broadcasted live by television cameras from all over the world, which had been on site since the beginning of the siege. 
Members of the army tried to go inside by breaking the windows, but the flames made them return. At exactly 12.35, Mount Carmel was completely burned down. The FBI learned that nine of the Davidians fled by jumping out of windows and disappearing into thin air. On the roof, drones took images from the top of the residence, showing the fire started in three different places at the same time. Now, it was time to take stock. In the extinguished fire, the FBI identified 78 bodies, including those of David Koresh, Stephen Schneider, and 27 children. The charred body of Shari Doyle, one of David's young wives, was also found along with her baby. The first ballistic results showed that David Koresh was shot by one of the cult members, who committed suicide when the fire started. It was probably his very devout Stephen Snyder who obeyed his every word. This dramatic epilogue, which the FBI's bravely tried to avoid, made the news for months. In all, 35 Davidians survived by escaping the fire. Clive Doyle, the father of Koresh's young wife Shari, is one among them. For these survivors, who had long remained out of the limelight, the haunting, the guilt, and the remorse remain. The feeling of having been accomplices in an abominable organized crime and of having been manipulated by a psychopath with a huge ego remain. The question that remains unanswered to this day is, who could have started the fire at Mount Carmel? Koresh himself? A follower in a panic attack? A mass suicide ordered by the guru? We will never know. Thus ends the story of Mount Carmel and the Davidian sect by its emblematic guru. The fire on which the apocalyptic doctrine ended remains one of the worst episodes of American sectarian aberrations. Although some of the survivors among the former followers had chosen to turn their backs on this dramatic episode in their lives, many remain nostalgic for the guru, like the former midwife of the sect, Sheila Martin, who recounts with emotion, I miss David. I still see him as the son of God. I still listen to his recorded sermons. Thankfully, my children and my husband are now by his side. That's how much of a hold this man has had on his followers, who still don't hold a grudge against him even today. Some former members even regret having left before the fire. According to them, it would have been an honor to die at his side. They managed to extricate themselves from the cult, but the cult lives on in them. Although many associations have declared war on these cults and their leadership through awareness campaigns, hotlines, meetings, sit-ins, and the sues of short films, the fact remains that many cults are still very powerful, even untouchable, for the average person to change anything. The FBI agents were completely shaken by this experience. Their reputation was tarnished for a long time as many accused them of having provoked courageous anger and of having implicitly triggered the wake of fire. The federal agents still defend themselves today, saying that they were only doing their duty. This did not sit well with those who witnessed the siege and sought revenge on them. Indeed, two years later, at the same time, a former Marine by the name Timothy McWay blew up federal offices in the state of Oklahoma, one of the worst attacks to ever occur in the United States. In his defense, he said he wanted to avenge Koresh and his community posthumously. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. In some countries, these cults have managed to gain the support and collaboration of the authorities and sometimes even governments. Corruption is one of the cult's favorite means of buying the silence of certain officials. In France, Switzerland and Canada, the Order of the Solar Temple OTS had the same impact on its followers and then wreaked the same havoc to do the same degree of severity as the Davidian sect. 
the collective suicide masked by a hypothetical trip to the planet Sirius generated one of the worst human and material losses ever experienced by the three countries. As with the Koresh cult, the OTS gurus did not hesitate to put children at the forefront of the sacrifice and to brandish them as scapegoats when the opportunity arose. Vigilance remains the only way to circumvent these new forces of evil hidden behind deceptive message of peace, brotherhood and love. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.